Hello, you're listening to World of Noise on X-Ray FM and the X-Ray Podcast Network. I'm your host, Bob Ham, And, well, this wasn't the show I was expecting to share with you this week. For one, one of these interviews uh, with singer-songwriter Monica Metzler, who performs and records as Forest Vale, was supposed to air last week to promote her concert at the Doug Fir. And my other guest, Jeffrey Silverstein, had a big tour he was looking to promote, as well as talking about his new album, You Become the Mountain. But, as you know, nearly everything in the music industry is in a state of disarray right now. Concerts and festivals are getting postponed, if not outright cancelled. Record Store Day was moved, as were the release dates of a number of major albums, putting a huge hit on the independent record stores here in town. And the day jobs that a lot of musicians have had to pay the bills and to get health insurance have been put on hold, hopefully temporarily, but in many cases permanently. You know, nearly every one of the guests that I've had on the show so far has been affected in some way or another. Sophie Enlow, one of the organizers of the Old Time Music Gathering, saw her upcoming event, the Klezmer Fest, canceled. All of those children's music performers and tribute bands that I've had on the show are all without gigs right now. PDX Jazz has had to cancel shows. Mo Troper canceled an East Coast tour. My point is this. Now is the time to step up and help these folks if you can. Go to their Bandcamp pages and buy their albums or their merch. Uh, if you can afford to, donate some money to organizations like PDX Jazz or the Portland Old Time Music Gathering or Kala Kendra. See if the artists that you love have Venmo or Patreon accounts and toss them some money, again, only if you have the means. And that means us here at X-Ray 2. Uh, besides the fact that shows like this are now being reconfigured or reimagined to deal with the fact that for our health, we are being asked to stay away from the X-Ray studios, we might end up losing members and foundational support in the process. Again, if you can, please show your support to this station. Not only are we trying our damnedest to keep you apprised of the news and information concerning the coronavirus and how it is affecting Oregonians, we still want to amplify the voices of the artists that make this city such an amazing place to live. And on this show, I'm going to continue to highlight those artists and organizations that are behind the beautiful and challenging sounds that are keeping our spirits alive as we hunker down in our houses and apartments. Don't give up on us because we haven't given up on you, Portland. With that out of the way, let's start the show. Jeffrey Silverstein already had a world of experience under his belt before he decided to step out on his own as a solo artist. He was a member of the lush folk pop group Secret Mountains and one half of the Brooklyn-based duo Nassau, all of which earned him press accolades from the New York Times and NPR. But since moving to Portland a few years ago, He's been digging into the local scene and setting his own path as a solo performer. That has led him to his latest album, You Become the Mountain. This nine-song release is a little wonder of zonked-out Americana that leans into his interest in psychedelic acts like the Grateful Dead and Ted Lucas, while staying true to a patient, lush, northwestern aesthetic. Before he went into lockdown, I sat down with Jeffrey at the X-Ray Studios to talk about his career as an artist and the path that led him to You Become the Mountain. Jeffrey Silverstein, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today. Yeah, thanks for having me. Grateful to be here. You are a recent transplant to Portland, is that right? Uh, yeah, I guess you could still consider it recent. You know, I feel like uh, in New York, I feel like everyone always put like the 10-year kind of mark for whatever reason. That's when you're a New Yorker. Oh, really? I don't know who came up with that number necessarily. <laughs> I don't know if people here have a number. Um 
but we've lived here this summer will be three years um and it's felt like home i've only ever lived on the east coast uh baltimore new york new jersey and now here um, but it's felt like home really quick well that's great um first you know first year was kind of like getting settled apartment job we didn't know a ton of people when we got here and i feel like you know now we're a little more settled we you know know a few more people feel a lot more connected to uh, you know the community so okay yeah why don't we go back to the very beginning of sure. your musical journey sure where did uh it all start for you was there a record or an artist that really sparked your interest in wanting to make music yeah i think about there's a bunch um it's funny because like recently i feel like i've been geeking out about music and like appreciating music on like i don't know what happened if i had to like i don't know i feel like something got in the way of me appreciating music the same way i used to and recently i've just like had this kind of spark again and i so i was thinking well who started that you know um i think my first favorite band ever was ever clear in in fifth grade <laughs> how about that i mean my parents had music on growing up a lot classic rock and stuff you know eventually i was starting to catch wind of a few things my brother was into and like the earliest i remember him being into was like things like rage against the machine and 311 he's a little older <laughs> okay you know? like and i liked rage a lot and all that or like beastie boys and uh things like that um and then i felt like he went down like the you know, Grateful Dead, Dave Matthews, uh, Fish, OAR, Heavy. And, like, as I was kind of getting older, I just, I wanted nothing to do with that world. You know, I was like, you're my older brother. Ugh, I'm not going <laughs> to, you know. Um, and, yeah, I just, like, went deep. At that time, growing up where I was in New Jersey, you know, just all of this punk, hardcore, emo, screamo, etc. kind of just totally enveloped me. Okay. And that was like my first band ever. It was an awful like pop punk band <laughs> in high school and uh you know, yeah. And now you're wearing a Jerry Garcia pin on yeah, your shirt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, well, it's funny I I you know, that obsession is over the past few years and I like hearing a lot about how how and why different people get into the dead. Yeah. And, um, but I, I, it's so funny thinking back, you know, my brother literally had binders full of like live dead, you know? Wow. And I was like, I don't care about this. Like, where's my, you know, hardcore, whatever. <laughs> um, and now I'm like always like, wait, do you still have those? Like, <laughs> um, so yeah, that's been, that's been interesting. Um, but I like that. I feel like I kind of had to like, come full circle and I, I enjoy hearing about how different people kind of have gotten into that world but I feel like it's also part of like the indie world uh, uh, starting to like accept like jamming I think so yeah <laughs> uh, yeah when did then it become you moving away from punk and yeah. emo and stuff like that into more of the Americana sound that I think people would recognize if they listen to your music and the other bands that you were in before? sure sure um I mean, it kind of grew out of uh, my environment and kind of out of necessity. You know, I kind of did a very, fairly uh, common move, which is like, well, I'm going to college. I'm not bringing my stupid, like, Marshall half stack that I thought I needed for some reason <laughs> for my bad band. You know, I'm not bringing that to my dorm room, right? So you start downsizing. Okay. You know, and you're like, 
I guess I'll play acoustic guitar now, you know, <laughs> um, here we go. And then, so I started writing songs, you know, in college, not like occasionally playing out by myself, um, which is funny that I've also come full circle to now playing by myself again. Cause it, and that took a really long time. Um, <laughs> but, um, there, I would get really stoned and go to the library and take out so many CDs. Like, and I realized that that was like one of my favorite moments from college was me stoned <laughs> alone at the library to digging, yeah. you know, my own kind of, and like Towson library, that's where I went to college. Like, um, they're the one right, right in town. Um, had a lot of good. <laughs> Honestly, it was kind of the Neil Young live at Massey hall that okay. I was just like, cause it comes with a DVD of the yeah. performance. I don't know something about that. I was like, yo, this is, I don't know. It changed the way I thought about a lot of things. And honestly, I've come to like, not even necessarily be like the hugest Neil person, Mm -hmm. you know, like the same way that I know a lot of people are Right, like that's sensitive. Like (laughs) no one touches Neil, you know? Um, (laughs) But anyway, so that kind of started shifting, you know, listening to more, uh, and then the whole like Vetiver's and Devendra Bernhardt's and Vashti Bunyan's, that whole world hit. And I was like, wow, this is a combination of so much of what I like about music. Then the band, you know, started end of college. And when I stayed in Baltimore, that I think that band probably lasted six years. It was a six piece you know, full on kind of psych rock and kind of secret stuff. mountains, secret mountains. Yeah. And it was, it was, um, kind of started by me and my friend Kelly, who was the, the singer of that band. You know, it was my first try at touring and really pushing it. And um, I had no, um, the thing I've been talking about with buddies, though, is like, uh, it was also just like, you know, it was kind of like almost early era of like when certain music blogs were really important to. Oh, sure. Like the, the music uh, writing kind of landscape was, you know, really it felt so vibrant I don't know how else there were a to, lot of know, voices like, coming in there which was really yeah, great to see it was like the start of your Gorilla versus Bears and I guess I'm Floating and Brooklyn Vegan and Brooklyn Coke Vegan Glow. so yeah. there, I don't know very specific era of um, and so I don't know we had a little bit of wind in our sails but like um, I just I think I pushed so hard that like when it didn't when it finally kind of came crashing down i i was like who am i if i am not if i don't have this band and i was like that's a problem that you don't have another <laughs> you know wow kind of like version of yourself other than someone in the band <laughs> uh like not that not that that's like you know uh, you know I, I was like so beaten down but i was like whoa that that clearly meant a lot to me yeah and now it's not there anymore um, and that's right around the, that's kind of like early when I moved up to New York. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's when I, there was like a little while I was, where I was doing more writing about music, um, than 
playing music. Okay. Um, mostly, like I said, out of kind of boredom at a day job. Um, and then eventually I was just like, man, I, you know, I, it, something turned on where I was like, you're totally suppressing or just being kind of a baby about, you know, finding other people to play with, <laughs> you know, <laughs> like, I, um, so eventually I, um, yeah, you know, started writing a few more things and then that's what kind of led to, um, to the project I was doing in New York for a little while called NASA. those bands you know secret mountains and nassau did get a fair amount of attention from that world from that early you know music blog world yeah and you know that buoyed a lot of bands around that time um yeah. was that uh but i mean even those bands like you're getting written up by the new york times and yeah, stuff yeah. like they're getting you know mentions there how was that to navigate that attention i mean uh, maybe it didn't mean that much i'm not sure but you know at that point in time, it meant everything um, I, for a lot of different reasons. You know, I think it's just funny. I ta- I, uh, I actually interviewed uh, Steve Gunn pretty recently. Okay. We talked about this, that sometimes like with like family or with parents or like everything's like, oh, you should really like stick to covers or, you know, why are, you're not making any money, you know, but then you get a cool write up in the paper that they actually have heard of. Right. And they're like, whoa, my, you know, so <laughs> New York times was kind of that, like it was, it was validating in that way. Yeah. Um, but you know, um, again, I think I just, I, I couldn't, I don't know. I, I have, thought of things differently then and um i think to some degree i think it was like whoa like this is happening and the band's starting to sound good Mm -hmm. and we're working you know really hard i mean that band was you know practice once or twice a week for as long as i can remember you know and like you know we just yeah there was just i just remember the the it was kind of a first moment for me of like a stepping into somewhat, at least at first, like a band leader role. Mm-hmm. Um, and then simultaneously being like, well, this is what happens when you work really hard and you get this many people simultaneously to like be listening to one another yeah. and responding to each other. Like that's, that's not easy. That's not, that's not, you know, like it's easy enough to start a band but it's really hard to be in a band where everyone's listening. Right.
So you are out here now in Portland, and since you've been here, you have started making music on your own. How has that transition been, moving away from being in a collaborative project to being in something that's wholly your own and just has your name on it? I just, when we got here, um, I just kind of figured, you know, I want to be more in touch with the Portland music community. I want to meet people. I want to, you know, see where I can be if there's if there's a place for me, you know, if there's a room for me. And I'm so lucky that there have been just uh, numerous people that have just been so kind and supportive to kind of welcome me in pretty quickly. You know, I think that's different than New York. I, I you know, I can't say I always felt that in New York. Okay. Um, and that's I think what was so special about starting out. Um, but yeah, it kind of I caught wind of um, this artist residency at the Southwestern Lodge. You stay, um, work on music for a few days out on the coast, perfect setting for it. And then I kind of challenged myself. I said, try to write an EP's worth of stuff. And then I played my first show in front of people, you know, as, as just me as a solo artist in a decade at the end of that residency. So, wow. And it was terrifying and it was really bad. Uh, <laughs> oh. Ultimately, okay. I mean, like, I mean, <laughs> you know, I'm like, whatever i'm you know ha- has to start somewhere exactly um but um i think after that i was like well keep going keep keep trying i like you know and then kind of got lucky met um my buddy jeremy out there that had a little like kind of home studio back in portland so there was like immediately like this very first connection of like wow someone else is out here that plays music and records music and it's kind of just gone from there. It's been terrifying and kind of beautiful at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, and I feel really good about the record we're um, about to put out. And I'm so happy um, to be able to have made it with, with a couple other musicians that I just really, really admire. a little bit about some details around the the new album you become the mountain mm-hmm. um it said in the press notes that it was led by the spirit of late detroit musician ted lucas yeah i wonder if you could elaborate on that <laughs> um i've been obsessed with ted lucas for a number of years now i have to give credit to andy Kabik of the band vetiver for initially turning me on andy does some unbelievable DJ sets. Um, lucky enough to see him DJ live in Big Sur, California at the Woods' Festival one year. So I think he was... Um, he turned me on to Bobby Charles, who's one of my all-time favorites, and Ted Lucas. Ted was a, a session musician that was kind of known for playing um, uh, kind of far-out um, instruments, um, like 
no one was you know in Detroit at the time was like or not as far as I know was like playing sitar. So like if you needed someone to be a sit in, <laughs> you know, they would call on Ted. Okay. Um, you know the legend kind of goes that he was hard to work with, <laughs> um, but you know an unbelievable player that played on all these Motown records. And then, kind of quietly, had this um, uh, this folk record where one side is just the most uh, beautiful, simple folk songs, um, and I think it's really the simplicity in his voice that really grabs people. Mm-hmm. Just I don't know. I think certain people gravitate towards a certain quality of someone's voice, and his is like his nails it for me. I'm like. Whoa. <laughs> um, anyway, the flip side of that record is more kind of uh, instrumental guitar numbers that kind of space out a little bit more. Mm. his buddies liked this record but in regards to getting it out into the world no one cared because at that time labels were like wait what is this record they couldn't make sense of it they said you cannot have a record that's instrumental on one side and song songs on the other like there was rules and so that record's one of my all-time favorites um and when i was working on the ep and this one i love records that can you know blend you know instrumental and and lyrics um and i have always been drawn to the simplicity of his words to you Mm. know songs that can just be one lyric repeated or maybe just a a nice little couplet or right yeah i think what i listening to your album you become the mountain and listening to it and and keeping in mind the ted lucas influence there and thinking of some of the stuff from nassau there's so much space in your music where you don't necessarily jump in with vocals like even on the first two tracks on the new record it's like your voice doesn't come in until a few minutes into the second song like the first song is almost an instrumental where there's a bit of poetry at the end of the first one yeah and then you jump in about the midpoint of the second song which yeah. i thought was really interesting that you left so much space in there but it uh, it, it makes for a very uh, beautiful like meditative listen thank you i really yeah i appreciate that um I feel good about the fact that that's what that that is a word that people have been you know using when describing music, and I think meaning it mm. <laughs> too, <laughs> uh, yeah, uh, or or at least I hope. You know, so, yeah. <laughs> well, tell me about the the poetry in the first song on the record. Perhaps your mountain has snow at the top and trees on the lower slopes. Perhaps it has one prominent peak. Perhaps a series of peaks or a high plateau. Whatever its shape or appearance, just sitting and breathing with the... Yeah, so I'm actually excited because I haven't necessarily talked to a ton of people about that. Um, 
so I was already kind of, you know, thinking of album, album titles in my mind. Um, I do, I meditate um, pretty much every day. Hmm. Um, that's kind of entered my life over the past few years. Um, more so, like, as kind of a, at first a tool to manage some anxiety and stress from being a teacher, I think is kind of what initially, like, mm-hmm. I, I felt like I needed something to kind of ground me a little. So the combination of running and meditation really helps that. Um, so there was kind of, um, and then a lot of, you know, beautiful things started coming together. I started thinking about how, when I come down from the West side up in the Hills where I teach every day, I have this stunning view of the mountain coming down Mm -hmm. every day. And there's not one day where like, when it's not just crystal clear that I'm just like my smile, you know, every, it doesn't ever stop amazing me that that is like a view of a place I live. Um, and then, so there was like. I feel like that was floating in the ether, right? Just really appreciating that that's part of my world. And then my wife and I really like going to estate sales. Um, Excellent. And uh, there was a series of guided meditation cassettes, and I was already a cassette kind of dude, you know, um, uh, by John Kabat-Zinn, who was kind of someone, I want to say kind of starting in the 80s that really started to push mindfulness into um, like uh, the f- Americans minds okay you know I think and he you know he studied you know under different Buddhist leaders and so he um, but anyway so he had you know different series books there's tapes of his um, and so there was like lake meditation mountain meditation and this tape I was looking at I was like holy shit, this is like kind of what I want, you know, the album art to be, you know, kind of inspired by two. Um, and it's amazing to think that at one point in time, people were meditating to cassette tapes, right? To guided cassette <laughs> tape, like that blew me. You know what I mean, I was so happy to think about someone sitting down without their smartphone, mm-hmm. putting, pushing press play on a cassette and meditating. Like something about that seemed like, Oh, whoa, that's cool. Yeah. Um, and the last kind of section of one of his little guided meditations on, on that tape, um, he's, you know, talking about, you know, in your mind's eye, you know, bringing the mountain into your body, like ultimately some pretty like, you know, hippy dippy stuff that I love. Um, and so we kind of just took a, a snippet of that. And the very last, uh, line in kind of that little section, he says, you know, you become the mountain. Wow. Um, and the first time that we put that on top of the song or like underneath the song in the studio, I was just like kind of like laughing and crying at the same time because I was like, this is it. This is what I wanted, you know, <laughs> like this very nice moment when things just click and you realize, yep, that's the album title and that's the opener and like, let's let's go. You know? Wow. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> very cool. Yeah. There is a lot of instrumentals, not a lot of instrumentals. Yeah. It's, it's not a lot of mu- songs in the record, but there's a sure. handful of instrumentals in there as well. Um, and uh, the instrumentation on the record is, is very interesting to me because you use uh, a lot of drum machine on here rather than like getting live drummers in the mix. Was that a very deliberate choice? Pretty much, you know, 
every time I like write a song or play a show recently, I'm like, oh, should I, should I have a drummer? You know, like, should I just transition to have? And the answer kind of keeps being no. Okay. Uh, not that I can't imagine that happening or, and sometimes I miss it. Sometimes I really miss the, what happens when you're bouncing off of a drummer. Um, but it somehow keeps it in this like specific pocket and mood that I think works really well. And I just don't know if I was like ready because like, I, I used it on the um, on the EP too. Mm-hmm. And then I don't know. I kind of liked that for me, at least right now, that kind of operated as somewhat of a touchstone. Um, and then I got so lucky because um, I started just to enjoy researching drum machines. I think they're so cool looking, and sure, you can get really out of hand really quick, though. You know, with <laughs> I like, think going down any rabbit hole with music equipment, yeah, you it's just like in silly. trouble, yeah. Um, but right around when I was gearing up to release my, I guess the maybe it came out. The EP came out on a little record label in LA, mm-hmm. and Barry Walker, who played pedal steel on this on "You Become the Mountain," who plays in Roselit Bone, in Mouth Painter, in Hearts of Oak, has played with Marissa Anderson, Michael Hurley, like busy guy. He's he's really unbelievable and I just got lucky because I realized he put out a solo pedal steel record on the same label hmm. um, and then I was like holy shit, he lives in Portland I was like I got it you know so went and saw him play and um, you know I, I look up to Barry you know in a lot of ways mm-hmm. you know, for, he's so I mean it's it's beautiful watching him play so kind of got him on board and then uh, Alex Chapman bassist also just a phenomenal individual f- phenomenal musician he was playing with Evan Thomas Way, um, he plays in. I think it's called the Weather Machine. Machine, yeah. yeah. Um, the first time I got them together, I was just like, "This is it. This is the sound." <laughs> just so lucky that they've uh they're you know again busy people um and that they're you know willing to ever kind of just take a take a minute for me <laughs> you know so um yeah i'm excited um to uh, be able to kind of just showcase their work a bit as well it's just so cool to hear a record that uses drum machine beats and i have heard this in other records but it was just nice to get a reminder of this of just how you can use you know the very you know uh stiff rhythmic sound of a drum machine but still make it sound very organic and like like a real band as well and i think so when we recorded it was the songs that feature the three of us. Mm-hmm. You know, there's a handful of songs that are mostly, you know, the drum machine and, and me. And then the others are, you know, this, I'll call it, that's like my full band sound, you know, is one okay. of those guys. And, and for the most part, it was just, um, it was just live. Um, or it was. Uh, and it was, so it was all of us, you know, in the, in the room at the same time. And um, there's something really cool about just being able to, to see one one another during that process mm-hmm. and just kind of respond and 
again, you know, it just never hurts when you're playing with people that are just such pros. And right. I think, and it also, like, I, I was so happy because I felt like for someone that is not necessarily trained in the way of like, oh, that's the diminished seventh chord, or I don't, I don't know that literally like at all almost um same uh i felt like i still can lead a group of people in regards to like uh being able to describe the emotion Mm -hmm. where i'm headed with something and they just got on board and kind of just ran with it so do you have any plans or ideas beyond that uh Yeah, the plan is to hopefully be right back in the studio with Ryan again. Okay, uh, in May to do another EP. Um, I am, you know, hoping to have you know to have Barry and Alex um, on that, um, and starting to think about you know what one more step forward, you know, in this in this project would would be. Um, so I've got. Yeah, um, I'm hoping that I'd be able to record again and um, trying to take advantage of the sa- the fact that I actually like feeling like I have enough tunes already. You know, normally oh, you're done with the record, you're like, oh wait, when when do more songs come? <laughs> um, at least historically, that's how it's been for me. I write pretty slow. So if anyone wants to learn more about Jeffrey Silverstein's music, you can go to jeffreysilverstein.bandcamp.com, hear his previous EP and some music from his new record, You Become the Mountain. You can follow him on Twitter at at Future Myth, and be sure to check out his label as well, Arrowhawk Records at arrowhawkrecords.bandcamp.com. Again, they're releasing You Become the Mountain, the new record by Jeffrey Silverstein on April 3rd. Jeffrey, thank you so much for being on the show today. Yeah, thank you. Monica Metzler feels like she's about to arrive at the place where she began. When she first stepped out as a performer, it was under the name Moniker, and under that umbrella she melded folk music, pop, and electronics to entrancing effects. But as she transitioned into recording and performing as Forest Vale, the electronics started to fade into the background, replaced by an earthier, almost ritualistic folk sound. These days, though, she sounds like she's getting back into the world of electronics. A recently released digital collection of rare tracks and b-sides finds her dabbling in hip-hop production and fully MIDI-produced pop tunes that, as she says in our interview, might be her next direction as an artist. Monica stopped by the X-Ray Studios recently in what was going to be an interview to support a gig at the Doug Fur, but remains a fascinating look at an artist at a pivot point and the route she took to get there. Monica Metzler, thank you so much for being on World of Noise today. Thank you for having me. Let's get a sense of your background. Uh, what was the first music that you really connected to? Oh, wow. I, you know, honestly, we were talking about this um, in a group. I, I facilitate music classes. And okay. one of the questions was like, what was the first like tape? This is going to date me, but tape or <laughs> CD that you you bought you know that you remember getting and um mine was mariah carey and boys to men so i feel like i was really drawn at first um to like pop and soul sensibilities that was uh my first like introduction and i kind of got pulled into hip-hop and then found my way to folk and songwriting which is really where i i 
collaborate and work from now mostly. Right. Yeah. Where did you grow up? Um, well, I grew up all over. I've been in Oregon since I was 10. Okay. So I'm sort of a homegrown Oregonian, um, but in the South. I was in Tennessee and North Carolina. Okay. Did you start out then when you started making music, going down that road of like R&B, hip hop, that sort of world? You know, no, I was actually like in middle school and I started playing guitar and writing my own songs. Um, and then I was in like the ska punk phase. So like Ooh. No Doubt, you know, like Goldfinger, um, Green Day, Pearl Jam. And so I was kind of writing in that vein more at that point, just like power chords when you're first learning and right. rocking stuff. And yeah, so it's it's moved a lot. Clearly. Mm -hmm. When did folk music then enter into your world? I would say that would be um, like early adulthood, you know, like college years. Um, and I started getting more into the classics like Joni Mitchell, um, Jeff Buckley, you know, Leonard Cohen, and then found my way to sort of the modern things as they're arising with pop culture too, you know, being a teenager, like Jewel and <laughs> all those, <laughs> all those things, um, those lovely like guilty pleasures of mine still and um yeah and, and that was just the vehicle for my self-expression was mm -hmm. like playing guitar and i've always written poetry or uh journaled a lot so just like putting those two together it was really easy to yeah create from that and and to create with myself in that vein when you first started recording uh under the name moniker you had um a fantastic sound that blended folk music with electronic sounds. Mm -hmm. When did that uh, come together for you? You know, I think just in my my yearnings with music and where I am, I'm I'm really drawn to a lot of eclectic things, and so I think with my own creation, um, it just fuses together in a way. And um, I got a loop pedal and I got some toys and started messing with that, but still had my you know my songwriting background and um, so playing with the two and with the moniker album, I mixed and recorded and produced it myself in my basement, and so that was just like playing with all the things I had and um, really getting into effects and mixing and coming up with that synthesis of, of like Folktronica. artists or albums that were sort of influencing or pushing you down that direction yeah yeah like you know coco rosie is kind of one example it's different but that sort of amalgamation that's a name that doesn't get mentioned very often unfortunately right yeah they've they've kind of fallen um behind the scene now but they were really big at that time mm -hmm. and they were an influence um yeah no i just i love all sorts of music and you know, I love folk music, but I love um, creating, innovating as much as possible. I think that's what we can do. Like, so much stuff has been done already at right. this time. So it's like, how do we, how do we put it all together and, and innovate so that it's unique since it's been done so much before? Absolutely. Now, the note uh, on the moniker album, The Cruelest Month, uh, says that it was written during the dregs of Oregon winter. 
mm-hmm. and it feels like a bridge to uh, how your most recent album, Salida, that you recorded as Forest Vale was created, because as you said, that was recorded where you challenged yourself to write a song a day, I think do I have that right, yeah. during you know, a big snowstorm when everyone was kind of hunkered down. Yep. Um, are you very affected by the weather in that way? Do you, do, you, do you use that as a creative leaping off point or is that just sort of happenstance of those two things connecting like that? Yeah, you know, I think I am affected by the weather um, and I I feel like a lot of Portland creatives are, you know, and it sort of lends itself, our winters and our like more inner world period lends itself for us to like it in our creative caves a bit more. Mm, very and, true. You know, and then the summer comes, it's, kind of manic you know it's like (laughs) either like you're hidden in your house and it's really like rainy and dreary or it's like it's time to go because we have like four months of this weather um so i really tend to create a lot and be more creative and introspective yeah in Mm. the off season the winter seasons okay yeah when did the switch occur for you moving from moniker to forest vale um that was about four four or five years ago um and yeah, the switch happened really, um, it was hard with marketing for Moniker. You know, my name's Monica Metzler and Moniker really feels true to me as sure. sort of a pseudonym. Um, and you couldn't find my stuff very easily. And in the day and age of digital distribution and, and search engines, um, you know, I was ready to, to switch to, I was ready for a change and I just started pairing words together that would evoke imagery and that I could get a domain, <laughs> honestly. <laughs> and um, Forest Vale hit the hit all the spots for me because, um, yeah, it feels true to me and my Oregon and Pacific Northwest roots and sort of the mystical, um, elusive components I like of the creative journey as well as it was com. <laughs> Fair enough. <laughs> The sound, too, I feel shifted around that time as well. Or I, There is little electronic elements, I think, in the first couple of Force Veil records, but uh, it feels more organic, especially the most recent record, Salida. It feels very much uh, an earthier sound with, you know, mostly live instruments and uh, real people playing them. purposeful decision on your part no it, it just ended up organically being that way you know um i i wrote it in the same vein of how i'd write moniker stuff um just with this the force fail albums i have a partner um a co-worker and a music partner uh luke hall who records with me and produces with me um and so together I think just with the time and not left to my own devices and having different studio toys and having a really um, on-point producer and engineer created this like crisper, cleaner live element. Mm -hmm. And with the last album we did, we laid all the backing tracks as a trio. So it was like a live element Mm -hmm. very much. And then I would go into the studio and overdub with time. Okay. But I did want to keep it really... um, yeah, simplistic and more like psychedelic rock up at the front. 
mission accomplished, I will say. Thank it you. sounds great. Thank you. The album, it sounded like reading from the, the bio on your website, took a number of years to finish. Mm-hmm. Um, and it was that period of, you said, you know, writing these songs per day and getting those together. Um, why did it take that much longer? Like four years did it take to get from beginning to end? Yeah. Um, yeah, I wrote the songs really, really fast. And then the process of actually making and producing and um, releasing the album was a lot longer mostly just adulting stuff being in grad school um i also work uh as a music therapist Mm -hmm. and work for this great nonprofit in portland called my voice music so just trying to find the time um and we could have pumped it out a lot sooner but i also really with this album was just letting it happen Mm. Because that's how it happened. You know, I wasn't planning to do anything specifically. I was just stuck inside for a long, long time during the snowpocalypse <laughs> and challenged myself to do something with my time and ended up with this record. I, people have been, you know, as I do with these shows, I like sort of edit bits of the music in between our conversation. By this point, people have heard what you sound like. But I think something that expresses so much of what Forest Vale and you are about is in the video that you made for Harem. Now, since obviously we can't show people the video on the radio, um, how would you best describe that and that video and then tell people a, sort of the inspiration behind it? Yeah, it was um, a very collaborative process. Um, and so it was a group of non-binary and women only um, from the people in the video to the people who shot the video and edited it. Um and yeah, we worked together. Um, we didn't. We had sort of a loose vision, but it was very much um, an in-process piece where mm. we went to my friend's property. We had about thirty-six hours to make something happen, and together collectively and ritually, it was very ritual in a lot of ways. We created harem, um, and yeah, it it worked out. It was it was wild and it was cathartic and it was confusing. Um, <laughs> But luckily, it all it all came together, and in the spirit of collective creation and community. It's a very beautiful video. Like everyone's uh, doing these very choreographed movements. All the outfits are, that you're wearing are very similar. Um, so it has that again that ritualistic feel to it, which is kind of amazing to bear witness to. And then it works so well with the song. Yeah, absolutely. It worked really well, and we did pieces of planning you know it wasn't like we just showed up there were definitely structural elements we had to plan out like um the dance was choreographed by my good friend rebecca styles and so we had learned the dance and um but that was the cool part was there were so many components and each piece done by um a woman or non-binary of like the capes were made by heather treadway who's a, a stylist in town and um you know it was shot and edited by chelsea smith and everyone just came together and it really showed me the power of community and the power of what can be done if you trust the process is it important for you to work primarily with women and non-binary people um yes yeah i i don't always i mean i i work with anybody who it feels good to work with honestly um but um i think 
Yeah, it's I want to I want to elevate voices that haven't been heard so much, which is still women and non-binary and trans folks um, in in all of life, but right. definitely in the music world too. So, I think it's really powerful um, to be able to create with voices that haven't been heard as much. Absolutely. I think that is a great segue into uh, Spirit House Records, which is the label that uh, I, I don't know exactly your role with that. Are you part of that? Did you help found that? Are you part of that? How, what is, how does that work? Yeah, I, uh, really, it was. it's the baby and project of um, Johanna Warren, okay. who's another beautiful touring songwriter. Um, and uh, it was sort of a, her idea, but... I was at the beginning of it, uh, the impetus of it with a couple other artists like Indira Valley. Um, and together we started the platform for it and it's evolved over time. Um, and it's become more of a, it's a more of a collective space. Um, you know, we say Spirit House Records and we are a record label in the, in the sense that we release records. We have um, a collection of artists. We support each other, but it's more um, a platform where we can utilize each other or resources or lift each other up. Um, we don't function like a record label. There's no money, you know. It's more like <laughs> a co-op collective experience at this point. Yeah, you've got a lot of amazing artists involved with this between uh, yourself and Indira Valley, like you were talking about. Uh, Trinetti, who was uh, for a guest on the show oh, yeah. uh, about a month or two ago. Yeah. Robin Bassior, who's an incredible local mm -hmm. artist. And then Lola Kirk, mm -hmm. who's a great, uh, again, touring singer-songwriter. So you're kind of all over the place with this. And it's amazing to, to yeah to have that collective vibe for this project. I really yeah. like that. And it's really lovely because then, you know, it's just like if you like – my music and you go to the spirit house page you could find other music that might speak to you and um yeah and it's been really it's been really lovely and sweet to have this collective and again spirit houses was created to elevate voices that are not usually heard in music in the music industry so again queer um trans non-binary women things like that so that just feels really great to to be able to support each other and lift each other up interested now to ask you about your work that you do as a day job as you said doing music therapy uh -huh. um when did you get involved with that um that's a good question it was kind of a meandering path i've always perceived and and used music for my own therapy mm. and and seen it as a therapeutic tool of transformation i mean it's really a tool of self-awareness i think being any sort of artist it's like your art informs you <laughs> it's, it's constantly informing me of like where I'm at and what I'm I'm working through and um, it's a great tool for that so I've always known that um, and I've worked for this nonprofit my voice music we work with youth um, in treatment centers and as well as we just do like rock camps and all sorts of things for the community um, 
And so with that path, I've been working with them for six years. I was I was doing that work. And then I decided to go to grad school and get my counseling degree. And um, I've fused the two. And um, yeah, just with my interests and my skill set at this point, I've I've really focused on expressive arts therapy, so mostly art modalities or music and really using that as another tool of processing. How do you feel that working with these kids and working in the uh, art therapy world has affected your own music and your own art? Uh, It's affected me a lot, yeah. It's, I mean, I, you know, they say that you're always teaching what you need to learn, and I feel like a lot of that is like, let go, surrender. Like, why are you holding on to expectation or, or perfection right away? You know, and I, everyone does that, and I do that as an artist, and it limits me mm. instead of being interested in the process and being interested in the failure. Um, and so I'm talking through with these youth, and, and it's really like, oh, this is a reminder for myself <laughs> when I sit down to work on music and, and those inner critic voices come up that want to stop me um so i think it's just always a like a reminder and i appreciate that about the work because some of the best stuff is made in like 10 minutes when you let go and you're just exploring and you're not tied to a vision or an identity or a sound and so i want to keep remembering that for myself too it's really yeah it's a beautiful thing letting your defenses down in that way and just creating yeah um it's a rare it's a rare thing so it's nice to hear that you're encouraging that with other younger musicians and yeah they'll take that forward i hope so i hope so how do you if you talk about music as therapy for yourself do do you view like live performance as uh, a form of that as well or uh, or does it come from the ritualistic side of things yeah i think yeah, definitely. I think performance can be very therapeutic and cathartic. Um, and it's a connective experience. You know, it's the audience involvement as much as the performance and the band. And um, it is a ritual. I think mm-hmm. it is a ritual. But I think you know when a ritual is working. <laughs> the feeling of it <laughs> of like, point. okay, the container has been set. Um, you know, there's there's reasons for it. Um and I feel like the performance can be like that, of like really intentionally setting things and like also having to surrender to the forces that you can't predict. And um, audience is a big part. The energy the audience brings can influence you and vice versa. So yeah, I definitely, I've been to so many shows that have just, you know, blown me wide open and like been such a therapeutic experience for me. Absolutely, same here. Yeah. What comes next for you after that? Oh, you know, just writing. You know, I at this point in my musical career, um, and so after that, you know, I don't really have a, have a lot of plans. I'm actually releasing a B-Sides album, um, which is just these random songs that I've done over the last decade with collaborators and friends and um, a side of me that people might not hear so much with the music that I release, um, like hip-hop songs and electro songs. Wow. And, the, I recently wrote a, a pop electro song um, using all MIDI, which is something that I have not really been doing. But <laughs> with my work at My Voice, I use um, MIDI and GarageBand a lot. Sure. And I've really 
have a new respect for for that you know garage band is not like uh, <laughs> uh you know people in the in the in the industry are like not using garage band right. very often but <laughs> i have to say i've really i've really gotten into some of the garage band elements um so the new track that i'm releasing which will be the first track on the b-sides album i think is going to be more the direction i'm heading which is I don't know, like sort of this electro, um, poppy, dancey vibe. I'm writing from that place, so I'm just going to follow that. Monica, thank you so much for being on the show today. This has been a treat. Yeah, thank you for having me. Well, that's it for this edition of World of Noise. Thank you so much for listening in. And again, please go to forcedfail.bandcamp.com or jeffreysilverstein.bandcamp.com and support these artists directly. And if you can, keep supporting X-Ray and shows like these. Next time around, I'll be spending the hour with the black metal artist Ms. Moore, who talks about his struggles with faith and Christianity and how that brought him to his cathartic sound. That's next week on World of Noise. Until then, thanks for listening. 